good recording. Oh, cool. All right. How's it going? <laughs> hey, Jake. <laughs> how you? How are you surviving this uh, coronavirus? So far, so good. Uh, better than before, anyway, because I do actually now, I'm pretty sure I have income to last me through April, which was okay. very much a question before. Yeah, how about you? Uh, yeah, hanging in there. I think uh, we are descending into true strangeness. Mm-hmm. But we recently fixed a found foosball table. Ooh. We have a fun tabletop game called Clask. I love Clask. We also have a portable ping pong kit that can be attached to most tabletops. And so, in theory, three games could be played simultaneously very <laughs> poorly. Welcome to Super Superstitious. <laughs> Paranormal podcast that is trying to figure out the best ways of handling quarantine. And also discuss the science behind the speaking strange. Uh, he's white, I'm Jake. <laughs> And uh, yeah, we're we're back again. We're basically restarting the show. Yeah, it's today. episode one hundred one. So it's uh, yeah, basically it's just the first episode, episode. one. Mm-hmm. So welcome to the show, everybody. <laughs> we're giving this a shot. <laughs> we, we are biologists. Uh, <laughs> we have background in friendship, friendship, science generally. And yeah, we love spooky stuff, and we love trying to understand more about that using the science at our disposal. And today, Jake, what dare we talk about? I don't know. I figured we should talk about, since we're biologists, it makes sense to talk about cryptozoology. Maybe talk about some cryptids we like. Perhaps cryptids we've never talked about before. Yeah, probably something totally brand new to the show, not something that we've ever covered in any capacity previously. Not something that listeners who've already heard literally 100 episodes of the show will have ever heard before. Exactly. (laughs) As it is an even episode... Do you, it's not it's not an episode an odd episode <laughs> well all the episodes are odd um so i don't know numbers and i guess that means that i go second oh no you froze <laughs> froze just staring off into space hello hey <laughs> where the heck were we should we take that again? Uh, yeah, we're just determining who goes first. Oh, right. So as this is an odd episode. <laughs> That's right. Do I go first? You do. Uh, all right. Today I'll be talking about Bigfoot stories. <laughs> <laughs> Bigfoot stories? Tell me more. Mm-hmm. Bigfoot, it's a big old ape, lives in everywhere in the world (laughs) so says everyone uh no today i'm gonna bring two sort of ways of telling bigfoot tales to our attention and we can just enjoy those Mm -hmm. one is the sober submission and the other is the other kind yes my first comes from a these are both from uh, bigfootencounters.com which delivers on what it promises yes say and this is in the stories, sightings, encounters, and letters section with the heading Australia. Mm-hmm. As a naturalist with a particular interest in mammals, I have been investigating reports of unexplained predators and livestock killings in southern and western Victoria, Australia, for some time. I am not associated with any research group. Let me make sure I'm recording. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> for any of that? I'm not recording. 
Oh god. <laughs> oh god, Jake. <laughs> so we'll start recording now. Yes. And so, you don't have to take that all you can take over as much as you want to, but I have the audio from Skype. Oh yeah, that's perfect. Then maybe I'll just continue from from here. Yeah. I'm glad that you have the <laughs> Skype audio. <laughs> All right, so as a naturalist with a particular interest in mammals, I have been investigating reports of unexplained predators and livestock killings in southern and western Victoria, Australia, for some time. I am not associated with any research group with a focus on cryptic animals, but liaise with other independent researchers as appropriate. (laughs) What a way to put it. Maybe this isn't the best example. (laughs) In the last few years, I have been given two reports of what appear to be hair-covered man-like animals in my research area, Uh, meaning their backyard. Intellectually, I have great (laughs) problems with the idea of such animals occurring in Australia. But, as I trust and respect the informants regarding these two reports, I thought it best to make you aware of them. The first report I wish to lodge came from a work colleague of mine and took place in the early 1990s. Michael and his wife, both tertiary educated health professionals and five-year-old son, observed a meter high, which is roughly 3.3 feet, um, a meter high hairy hominid Mm. at close range for several seconds near their house in the bush a few kilometers north of Ballarat. The sighting was made late in the day, but in good light and initially at a range of only several meters. The beast ran away from them at a great speed, a speed they felt no human could move at. While it was quite short when compared to an adult human, it seemed quite heavily built and its forelimbs appeared to be disproportionately long. The hair was all over its body and about five centimeters long, or roughly two inches, Hmm. and the same length on the head, all dark brown in color. The face was not seen and ears were not noted. It ran from where they had disturbed it near the entrance to their drive, diagonally across the dirt road that services the district, and into a pine plantation where it crashed through the undergrowth. The ground was too hard for tracks, and it made no sound nor left any odor. Interestingly enough, at the time, their son said he had seen it before. Now, however, he has absolutely no memory of the event, and his parents don't like to refer to it. The other event related to me took place in the Otway Ranges, west of Geelong, near Tomahawk Creek. The observer, who wishes to remain anonymous, told me that in about 1989, he and three other mates, you know, Australia, (laughs) all in their late teens, were heading off for a night on the town in Kolak, in a battered sedan. It was already after dark, so they were making good pace along the gravel road through the state forest, so as not to waste much beer drinking time. (laughs) Descending a steep hill, it was necessary to break and gear down before ascending the coming hill. Which, I mean, I just keep my foot on that accelerator. Don't know why you would ever slow down. <laughs> um, as they got to the bottom of the gully, an enormous man-shaped animal started to cross in front of them, but stopped and retreated. My informant, who was a passenger in the left front seat, because again, Australia, <laughs> and the two lads in the back seat all saw the animal and were in shock for a few seconds, but not the driver. The passengers all panicked and begged the driver to get moving. The driver thought at first they were just joshing, but soon got the message. None of these boys wanted to talk about it, and I could get my informant to discuss it only once. They had never heard any talk about such animals in their district before or since. The animal was described as much taller than a man, maybe 
2.2 meters tall, approximately 7 feet, and very broad, with arms proportionally much longer than human arms, but legs compared to torso roughly the same as a human. No real neck, and head not exceptionally large. The face was not seen, but hair covered the whole body and was very long. The hair on the arms was described as hanging and was very evident. In the headlights, he could not truly discern color, but it may have been gray. My informant said it retreated very quickly, and he, uh, he felt it had tried to beat the car, but had misjudged their speed. He has avoided that spot ever since. Well. There you go. Two very matter-of-fact, simple detail descriptions of things that were unexplainable but left very lasting impressions on people. Yeah. And then we have the Bernardo Giant. I, before you get into the Bernardo Giant, I just wanted to say yes. I, I do find it interesting. There's plenty of yeah, like specific dialectic choices that are, as you said, Australia. But um, the repeated use of the term informant to describe <laughs> that one yes. guy. This like they're spying odd. on the strange. Exactly. <laughs> they have I'm a source to on the inside who saw this stuff. Yeah, behind enemy lines. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Um, so right, the Bernardo Giant mm-hmm. by Dennis Silik. Again, these are submitted to this site as purportedly just either eyewitness accounts or stories that have been heard that the mm-hmm. site then hosts. These include the historic sightings that I've read on previous episodes, and as well as like the Osman report or the Cowman story. All this oh, kind yeah. of stuff can Love be found the Cowman story. So, just giving you a sense of the range. Here we have Dennis's words. This is a story about a trip with a long introduction. I took to Rio de Janeiro, ending up on the island of Bernardo, and discovered to my amazement two footprints, one in humanoid form, about twice the size of mine, embedded into solid rock along its shores, the other a huge kind of bird, possible one some ten feet tall, possibly one some ten feet tall. I bet that's what he meant to say. Yes. And 100 plus pounds. I will try to read this as close to verbatim as I can. That was all <laughs> one long sentence with, let's see here, one, two, three, four, eight commas. <laughs> Some have said this side of the world at one time belonged to Atlantis. And then, of course, it sank. In a like manner, the Pacific side of the world belonged to a people called Lemurian, or Lemuria, for the most part. And, like Atlantis, it also sank. (laughs) Lemuria can claim Easter Island, Hawaii, and if one wishes to follow her footsteps, all the way down to Tahiti and Fuji. Fuji? Maybe he means Fiji. Uh For Atlantis, if it was still afloat, that would most likely take ownership of the Bahamas, the Bermuda Triangle, and all the islands along the coast of South America and Central America, out to the Azores, to include Bernardo. But not the Falklands, because that will get claimed by other people, probably. Exactly. How'd you know? In writing down this account, or discovery, of a giant footprint, as you will have noticed, I let my imagination go a little. I hadn't picked up on that. Why not, if you can't explain the situation with logic, go to the next level? Whatever is left, and so I do. That is why I have added <laughs> Atlantis to my little story or adventure. Every little pause I give, by the way, is another comma. I I had a feeling that was the case. Now, having said that, let's add some dates. 
Let's say the Atlantis was destroyed a number of times, <laughs> dating back to 104,000 years ago or so, oh <laughs> by natural catastrophes or wars. Like Troy, in Asia Minor, who was destroyed a number of times, who was destroyed a number of times by wars and natural catastrophes also, which dates back to the famous Trojan War of 1250 BC. Knowing there were other wars and catastrophes, the site now can be dated to 2900 BC. Thus, the area was inhabited long before that famous war of Troy, or so it has been said. In a helpless situation, Atlantis, it too could have been destroyed a number of times until its fatal sinking. Let's say in 10,500 BC. Be patient. I am building something here, I think. The only real, th the only real thing I know is the two footprints I saw. The rest, of course, <laughs> is folklore with my, comma, lore added to it. <laughs> Jake, so far, so good. Everything checks out so far. I tried typing this whole story incidentally into a descrambler, <laughs> and there is still a load screen going going on <laughs> that page. Now let's also say most of these islands in the Atlantic area were outposts for the continent of Atlantis, such as the Bimini Islands off the coast of Florida in the Bahamas, being part of Atlantis, which incidentally, some ancient roads have been found 10 to 20 feet below its coastal waters. And let's say the Azores, the Azor, Azores, 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 I actually don't know. One of those things that I've seen written a bunch of times and just kind of like accepted and then hearing it out loud. Like, oh, these, shit, I don't know. This is one of these moments where I'm like, I've learned this word from paper only. Exactly. I'm getting I'm getting a suggestion from a disembodied entity in the room that it is Azores. Okay. They think. It thinks. <laughs> and let's say that the Azores that belong to Portugal <laughs> were also a part of this empire called Atlantis. Now being its tips or mountaintops. If this were the case, most likely Bernardo would also belong to Atlantis. This guy is so hooked <laughs> on Bernardo being part of Atlantis and Atlantis and Lemuria being real. <laughs> They're very integral, I guess, to the telling of the story of where these footprints came from. Full disclosure, did not read this whole story because I wanted to be surprised by it as I went, now regretting it. <laughs> Accordingly, maybe these two giant footprints, giant capitalized, may have played a bigger part in mankind's history no than might have been expected. My premise, of course, all mythos. That being an inhabitant of an Atlantis outpost. <laughs> His premise, he admits, readily is mythos. <laughs> to take this one step further, oh boy. does not the USA have outposts? A rhetorical question at best. Yes, they do, meaning it maintains a certain amount of its military within the walls of the U.S., but most of it is outside its walls, such as chemicals on Johnson Island by Hawaii. Military still remains on Guam in the Hawaii South Pacific. Hawaii is part of the U.S. <laughs> outside its walls, Jake, in the South Pacific, an air base on one of the Azores Islands, a base at the South Pole, underground bases such as the Manzano base, Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is decidedly inside its walls, CIA <laughs> underground bases, and undersea trench structures such as the three and a half mile shafts and tunnels that lead out to sea beneath the ocean floor. Huh. Like Atlantis of its day, the U.S. is simply doing what has been done, a traditional response to a fear of future conflicts. Rome did it also. And let's add Greece to the list. 
Persia had outposts and Mongolia also and Russia tried and China is now trying and so in my theory it was done eons ago most likely by Atlantis my point is made (laughs) is it (laughs) Bernardo I believe is exactly that parentheses was a part of the past that inherited a disaster and the giant was part of that happening also you still with me, Jake? Wait, Jake, where are you going? Uh, uh, <laughs> Who was the Giants? <laughs> I have looked at it from a few different angles, ones we usually do not look at. The first question might go, do Giants exist or did they? Does someone have an 18-foot, or sorry, oh my God, does someone have an 18-inch foot other than a Giant? And can a person embed it into solid stone? Well, seeing believes, or at least... I think so. The other questions are, did giants exist? There seems to be enough evidence to prove there were giants in the past. Some we can see in fairy tales in the Bible, such as David and Goliath. And Og, who hid in Noah's Ark, a giant of sorts, and thereafter mated with his daughters. (sighs) Side note, how big did you say the footprint was? 18 inches long. 18 inches. Okay, Uh, Shaquille O'Neal's foot, size 22, 16 inches. He is an Atlantean. Mm-hmm. We can also reference the, quote, Circle of the Rephaim, which dates back to around 3000 BCE, a stone structure of circles, which have something like 37,000 tons of stone to its massive structure. It is said to have been built by giants. Also, the palace at Crete, which was said to have been built by the giant Titans, or watchers slash fallen angels of its day. And most recently, in the, 19, in the late 1990s, a number of citizens of Israel have come to witness giants between 7 to 13 feet tall on occasions, referring to them as the ones who were in their land 5,000 years ago, quote-unquote, the old ones? Some of their footprints were measured to be 35 centimeters deep, foot tracks, that is. These, are these UFO slash ETs maybe demon? No one seems to know. One of these giants were photographed. I seen the photo. It looks like a configuration of the statues on Easter Island. Alien? Good question. Whatever or whoever gene pool we have today, period. And now as I get into my story, I'm sure it will be less interesting than the introduction prelude. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Off the coast of Brazil. The story is very simple and short. Oh, good. While on vacation in July of 2001, my wife Rosa and I flew to Paris and ventured out to see Mount St. Michael's. On our way back home, we had purchased tickets to Rio and stayed only a day in St. Paul to wash up and change our clothing, then on to another plane we scooted. We never expected to find a footprint on an island that was simply supposed to be a laid-back trip among the 365 islands in the area, outside of the Rio area. A month earlier, we had just come back from Cambodia, seeing many temple sites throughout the country, so I wasn't in a hurry to jump into another adventure. This was to be a resting trip by the famous beaches. In any case, there we were in Rio de Janeiro, South America. After a few days there... I got bored. Hence, forward. From there we sailed into the island region, which I never knew there was one until we went. Once on the island of Bernardo, Rosa and I went our own way, 
with each other, that is, leaving the other 25 passengers swim in the waters of the island coast and bath in the sun on its lovely beach. As we walked about the coastal area, there it was, yes, right in front of my nose, right there staring at, staring at me, dusty and filled with debris, a giant footprint of the humanoid, or call him the Neanderthal, or if you wish, the giant. <laughs> Alongside of it was another footprint, but, sm- but it was smaller, like a bird's, a big bird. <laughs> a very very big fat bird and it was even deeper embedded into the stones as if the giant was walking with the bird or running from it or running or walking together and so i cleaned the area inside the print and along the outside and took a picture short and sweet but the trip was grand we also seen the sphinx of rio <laughs> mr childress talked about this in one of his books and so it inspired us my wife and i to check it out i sought out many of the people at the hotel to include guides and travel agencies to explain this sphinx but people were more interested in the beaches in closing it might be noteworthy to add dr john bindernagel discovery found in vancouver island between 1988 and 1993 some large footprints measuring 15 inches long and 6 inches wide, about the size of the footprint I discovered on the island. Maybe there is a connection between this South and North American phenomenon, single, like the mounds between North, Central, and South America. Whatever is the case, I suspect people will discover much more in the near future and be much better than I in putting together the giant theory, for I sense we all know deep inside of us There was another era back there, and most likely giants played a role in the history of mankind. We just can't put our finger on it. Uh, Well, then. I'm sorry, Jake. (laughs) That's all you have to say? (laughs) Your turn. Okay. (laughs) We don't want to discuss any of the uh, possible scientific explanations behind some of these theories he offered? Something that we look for in the sciences is empirical support for questions. And we also spend most of our time trying to prove our hypothesis or hypotheses as true. <laughs> That's right. We are trying we to make not, ourselves right. Definitely not trying to not, get at whatever the right answer is, regardless of whether it's or not. It's what we think. That is what is meant by a skeptical mind, uh-huh. is you are looking for information to support what you want to see. <laughs> so in this case, I think uh, this entire account was just basically a um, kind of a master class in the scientific method essentially his insistence on atlantis being <laughs> real his self-described theory as mythos as folklore <laughs> his his need to attach all of this to some sort of timeline that involves every single culture in the world apparently Ever. doing <laughs> stuff like this and some something about like preparation for war and like yeah i mean it all points back to if you ask me giants yeah and who was the giants he's looked at it from a few different angles and they are the angles that we usually do not look at and honestly what would your first question be jake uh, mine would have been what who was the giants i think it's true and after that do giants exist uh-huh. or did they <laughs> and i feel like he doesn't answer those questions <laughs> I feel like he doesn't know how to write full sentences. <laughs> oh, he does. He knows how to write very full sentences. 
That's well, a better way of putting it. Sentences. He may have found out. He may have cracked the code. Yeah, he he unwittingly <laughs> discovered how to write the fullest possible sentence, <laughs> which is to essentially use fifteen commas and three semicolons. <laughs> uh, um, oh. I do want to say that I'm seeing a pattern here that I I'm realizing comes up in a number of stories that we have covered as random accounts from. Some goofy people. Uh, I actually mentioned one just last week when I brought up again the idea of the Grand Canyon goofitude. Right. And also, like you know, with we go way back to episode I want to say nineteen with Joanna. Oh yes. And different, different, similar type characters we've come across over the years. It does seem like there is a very, very high tendency to try and combine as many different mythologies and histories and things in general as possible into one kind of shared narrative it's true i think a part of the reason for doing that is to feel like it's more real if you can see similarities between mythologies and think oh what's the through line this one crazy thing that i specifically believe and therefore it that ties must all be these together that this yeah. is real as opposed I'm recognizing to, a pattern at least right? yeah and that can be useful for people if it's something that kind of just like helps them have more peace of mind with something that's great if it's not hurting anyone anyway sure but uh boy right at what cost <laughs> well there you have it similarities between things does not necessarily mean all things are equally true uh, absolutely not. Just because there's a pattern does not mean there is a causal logical explanation yeah the fact that so many different different types of mythologies have similar stories you could argue oh that means that they are all literally true in one specific way or you could argue that they all come from a similar background of storytelling a similar tradition among humans trying to tell similar stories with similar morals or adapting right, different exactly. myths from previous cultures that eventually gave way to new cultures that could be it also maybe it could be it, it, i mean it wasn't <laughs> it was it, definitely giants it was giants <laughs> but it could be a sort of fundamental quality to the human experience <laughs> a sort of a structural necessity of delivering a narrative that imposes certain rules. Now that I hear it read back to me, I, I it's totally bullshit. Never mind. I, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. When you actually hear it, you're like, wait, what am I saying? <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, sure. figured we'd kick off this uh, new generation of the show uh-huh. with uh, some of the weakest content <laughs> I could possibly find. Awesome. Because uh, that, during coronavirus, is what I've brought to the table. Excellent. I'm going to put it on the virus. <laughs> there you go. All right, Jake, can you, uh, oh, actually, dare I say, before I go much further, or before either of us goes much further, yeah. I would like to mention that this episode is brought to you in part by Four Phantoms Brewery in Western Mass. Mm-hmm. Combines elements of D&D, heavy metal, and beer yes. to make very beer. good beer. <laughs> One of the ingredients is beer, but the end result is uh, also beer. Jake, I'm noticing that you're drinking a beer today i am drinking a worship doom imperial stout sounds scary it's pretty scary but yeah it's a very very tasty imperial stout and it's uh only my second sampling of of the fine offerings of four fathoms but um there's more oh if you're anywhere near western mass or actually it's available in stores is it not yes indeed i believe it is distributed in massachusetts and rhode island currently as well if you're planning on traveling through massachusetts uh, there is an upcoming event, mm-hmm. uh, Friday, September 4th through the 7th, RPM Fest, which is, as of now, I do not think canceled due to COVID-19, 
which could be a great band name for a heavy metal band to play there. Yes. Uh, this will be in Montague, Massachusetts. It's a festival for metalheads, and Four Phantoms is crafting a special brew just for them. And coolest of all, they'll be donating a portion of the earnings from that beer to local school music programs. Which is too cool. Very, very cool of them. And uh, to that end, unless they've already figured out a name, as you may have heard prior, we are going to just independently crowdsource this project (laughs) to ourselves and our listeners. So if you can think of a good name for a heavy metal, high fantasy, super dope beer of some kind, we don't know exactly what they'll be making yet, uh, do submit it to contact at superduperstitious.com. Or use the contact form on our website if you don't feel like actually typing it out, whatever. Yes, indeed. Uh, I had not prepared one for today. That's okay. I prepared four. You've prepared four beer <laughs> names. Do you want to do I them felt all bad. now? I felt bad for not coming. I'm going to come up with some every time until we start getting submissions. Uh, since I didn't have any last time, so I'm gonna, I, I thought I'd make up for it this time. So, uh, one idea I had was Lich Lager. Which depends very much on what kind of beer they're going to make. Yes. <laughs> as well as Aboleth Ale. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I also had this beer goes up to 11. Okay. And uh, something involving the word decibel. <laughs> That's as far decibel? as I got. <laughs> Dungeness decibel. Decibel Dunkelweizen. Ooh. And I will say <laughs> nothing. Okay. Listeners, you can do it better than we can. Why don't you send your beer name suggestions to us and we'll read them on the air. While we do that, we'll also, as always, thank Four Phantoms for supporting the show. Thank you very kindly. Now, Jake, Mm. take us away. Away from here to where I know not. Actually, I do know where. Far away. Specifically, we're going to Russia. uh, In an area we've actually, strangely enough, already talked about on the show before in episode 31. Oh, boy. Uh, so this is 2015 news story comes from RT.com. Mm. The article says, An unknown animal is killing chickens by the hundreds in villages in Russia's Voronezh region. Ooh. The weird alien encounter thing. The alien encounter thing, yeah. yeah. Anyway, frustrated poultry farmers claim that the beast is killing everything it can get, yet the ripped apart chicken carcasses have suspiciously little blood in them. Oh. Or, excuse me, little blood on them. Oh. <laughs> it's a little, it's actually, a very specifically, uh, a very important preposition difference. Uh, all the blood is inside. <laughs> yeah, none is outside. The week of carnage in the village of Davyadovka began on July 23rd when an unknown animal killed 95 chickens of the Go- uh, Golubov family household. The next day, the killer visited hen houses at two other households, killing 45 and 55 hens, respectively. The beast tore through a wire cloth and killed them all but one, Sergei Golubov told Mo online media outlet. I felt pity for the wounded hen and put it in a separate place, left some food and water for it, fixed the intruder's entry point, but the animal returned and took the hen anyway, he said. Oh, no. On July 29th, the intruder returned, killing all chickens at one household and some 60 geese in another. Hmm. Uh, My daughter has just turned six months old, and I'm a very light sleeper. I heard my chickens being attacked. It began at 1.24 a.m. as something was battering on the doors of my barn for about three minutes, recalled Elena uh, Contragina, explaining that her husband was away that day and she was too afraid to go out. The next day, she found all but one of her chickens dead. The surviving bird had bite marks on its body. Other people who lost their poultry also claimed that dead bodies of chickens bore visible bite marks as if left by a couple of big fangs. And everybody (laughs) noticed... Just a couple big fangs. (laughs) 
and everybody noticed that not much blood was spilled at the slaughter sites. Uh, similar mm. incidents took place in other villages of the Voronezh region in April, and also two years ago. Uh, as on this occasion, nobody saw the animal that killed chickens in their hundreds. Locals mm. suspect a dog or a wolf, but there is no direct evidence. Mm-hmm. This time, local residents spotted very large animal tracks in their vegetable gardens. Mm-hmm. If the tracks belonged to a dog, it would be one of up to 40 kilograms, which is bigger than those kept by locals. Mm. Resident Elena Abcharova claims that she has seen a strange-looking dog in her own vegetable garden. She described it as having, quote, a thin body, short and shining dark brown hair, hmm. longish muzzle, and large flaps. Flaps, huh? It's the size of the flaps that is the real giveaway here, I think. You want to be sure you investigate a potential monster's flaps. She did say large flaps, correct? Large flaps. Yikes. Yeah. Most dogs don't even have flaps. That's right. So. Quote, we're living at war here. We wake up at 6 a.m., go to bed after midnight, keep the hen houses secure, and leave some items at the entrance uh, so they will rattle if it comes, said Elena, adding that some of her neighbors stay awake all night long trying to catch the intruder. Never ever in my life have I seen a dog of this kind. I got scared and ran to my neighbor to tell her to check out her chickens, she said. Another local who uh, also has seen this strange dog noticed that it had big nipples as if it had littered recently. Oh boy. This is also a solid priority as far as looking for characteristics in an unknown creature. Uh, mm-hmm. You want to look for flaps. Always check the genitals, yep. flaps, uh, nipples, yeah, the reproductive um, organs of any kind. Uh, yeah, so our listeners should at this point be very familiar with the very first thing you should be looking for if you have an encounter with a creature you don't recognize. If you're unsure, I think you should try uh, episode one. God, I just like recommending try out episode one. <laughs> it is where this first comes up, and we didn't expect it to ever come back again, but it keeps true. coming up. Much like undesired genitalia. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to leave the story here for now, and we'll look at some other cases. But first, mm. what does it sound like to you, Mr. Shell? Chupacabra. Yep. <laughs> it is. A creature I've never heard about, nor know anything about, or anything like this. Same. And only just now getting introduced to you. That's but right. I would say Chupacabra. The <laughs> word just pops into mind. Makes me think of sort of a ratty dog. Kind of looks like a dog with mange. Probably go around sucking animal blood. Kill him. <laughs> Maybe it looks like some kind of weird two-legged thing, kind of hopping around like a kangaroo. Two-legged thing, kind of hopping around, kind of like a kangaroo, and a dog came together, made a baby. black eyes, sometimes black eyes. eyes. Hang on the roof, jump down, make you go, ah, kill your goat. If you had to guess. That's just shooting from the hip. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm taking us down a a trip down memory lane, um, and the legendary, quote-unquote legendary, Puerto Rican bloodsucker and goat botherer. Goat botherer. But I'm not going to repeat myself. Oh, no. Uh, we're going to look at some new accounts of this arguably pretty well-known monster, which I'm pretty sure we agreed back when we first talked about it that it's totally real. Um, so first up, yeah. February 2017, Victoria, Texas. On Highway 185 and Guadalupe Road in Victoria, Texas, a resident purportedly spotted a chupacabra. Following the tip of a crossroads today um, viewer, the news station went to the location and found an animal lying on the side of the road. It had mm-hmm. the paws of a dog, but the body of a hyena. Wow. Yes. What a thing to pull. March 2017. Elancho, Honduras. Residents of Las Agujas in Elancho, Honduras worried after finding a dead bull without eyes or a tongue. Mm. According to La Tribuna, residents saw an ugly white animal prowling the pastures and believed mm. it to be El Chupacabra. May 2017. Choloma, Honduras. By May 6th, 2017, a creature had killed 35 animals in the Monterey de Choloma municipality in Cortez, Honduras. Mm. Residents feared that the animal, which disappeared as if by magic, 
would eventually mm-hmm. hurt humans, especially children. Mm-hmm. Nelly David Martinez saw it one day at 12.45 a.m. after hearing a noise. Struck by fear, he was unable to move and couldn't get a good glimpse of the figure. But all the animals began to drop to the floor, according to La Tribuna. Boy. Uh, May 2017, Cordoba, Argentina. Mm-hmm. For months, people living in Charbonnier in Cordoba saw animals attacked. In May, a man took a photo of an animal that he described as a, quote, big bat, like the size of an eagle that can attack mm. horses and cows, according to TKM. Specialists of the Servicio Nacional de Sanidad y Calidad Agro- Agroalimentaria, Senasa, <laughs> dismissed mm-hmm. Chupacabra claims, you know the one, uh, mm-hmm. dismissed claims and instead said it was bats that were transmitting rabies to other animals. Whoa. Uh, June 2017, Nanagalito, Ecuador. 59-year-old Casimiro Flores believed that the creature he fought off was the chupacabra. One day, he heard a loud noise that sent chills up his spine. When he turned around, the about 5'7 man saw a creature, which looked like a brown dog with pointed ears, that reached his waist. Trapped by the animal, which dragged him around, Casimiro grabbed a stone and threw it at the creature's forehead. After letting out a cry, it ran away, according to Extra. Wow. So recent. Yeah. I thought Chupacabra got killed by Y2K. But that's another story. Uh, July 2017, Riverside, California, which is, I think, Taruna and James country, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, yes. In mid-July, when Carrie Shooker's cat raced inside their home, he looked outside and saw the, quote, ugliest looking thing staring at him about 80 feet away. With teeth jutting out in every direction, rippled skin, and a tail like a rat or possum, uh, Shooker said it looked nothing like a coyote. It was also, quote, at least two feet or more longer than the biggest coyote you've ever seen. Hmm. Sugar's not the only one who has spotted the creature in the Box Springs Mountain Territory. Uh, M.J. Bunt, an early childhood educator, also saw the chupacabra this year. Quote, I thought, that is the strangest looking animal I've ever seen, she told the Mm. press empire about spotting it near her home. It had the ears of a deer, long snout, no hair, tail like a rat, long hindquarters. I thought it might be a sick coyote, a sick wolf. They had mm. too many different characteristics from any of them. Mm. And lastly, here I have August 2017. So this is just all 2017. Uh, Santee, South Carolina. Big year for monsters. Yes. Uh, while golfing one day in the Santee Cooper Country Club, Doug Stewart took a photo of an animal that some believed to be a chupacabra. In a Facebook post that went viral, Stewart said the animal was most definitely not a dog. But as commenters weighed in with their different theories, some believed that it was actually a coyote or fox with mange. So yeah, basically, while Chicago was being terrorized by the phantom of it, crazy shit was happening further south that year. Yeah, right, exactly. And that crazy shit could only have been attributed to a monster that either hops around on two legs, has spines on its back, and has huge black eyes, or else looks just like a weird dog. Take your pick. Yes. Uh, I have gone on record saying that El Chupacabras was my favorite monster ever since I first heard of it in the mid-90s. Arguably, that's actually what got me into this kind of stuff to begin with, like just mm-hmm. cryptozoology and... 40 and research and cool spooky stuff. 40. Um, yeah, Chupacabra really got me excited. That and also the Discovery Channel show Animal X, which we, I think, both watched back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, I, I believe that's the show where I first heard of the Chupacabra. But one thing I also went on record saying was that El Chupacabras is an open and shut case. Uh, it's a super fun story, actually. Uh, the story behind it is really, really fun as far as that case itself and we all owe ben radford a big thanks for cracking that one Mm -hmm. Uh, ben is not yet a friend of the show but i believe he is a friend of a friend of the show so Mm -hmm. that's something 
he is deputy editor of Skeptical Inquirer and has done a whole bunch of nifty stuff. Again, check out episode one of this podcast for that particular story as far as all of the journalistic legwork that he that it took for him to go from the first sighting in Puerto Rico to a kind of middle-of-the-road sci-fi movie of the time and mm. just how that all ties together in a very, very compelling, uh, neat little story and how it all took off from there and why the look of the creatures changed so much over time. Right, from like uh, lizard monster to dog. Yes, so super cool story. I think he has a book about it too, which I'll link to if so. I'll try and find that and link to it. Uh, I'll link to his website either way. But cool. this still doesn't explain all of those dead livestock what with no blood. With the chickens. Yeah, so what's the deal with different stories? Of like a bunch of different cases of livestock dropping dead, their blood's missing, other stuff's missing. Uh, so first, I want to talk Don't about... Don't you dare see the blood pools. <laughs> I'm going to talk about what's called henhouse syndrome. Ooh. Uh, it's also known as surplus killing. Uh, it happens when a predator, like a wild predator, suddenly finds itself surrounded by an abundance of prey with no real limitation on its ability to kill that prey. Right. So specifically it's called henhouse syndrome because if like a fox suddenly finds itself inside of a henhouse, it's suddenly just locked in with a whole bunch of things it could eat and doesn't really know how to handle itself. Normally, a predator is just trying to kill and eat anything it can uh, whenever it can right, just to survive. Right. So if suddenly a predator is just, it just has yeah, a buffet a in front of it. Right. Yeah, its instinct is to just kill everything because it doesn't know when it's going to get its next chance to eat. It's like the predator equivalent of the, people may not remember these, contestant shopping cart competition oh, game shows yeah, shopping back in the sprees. day. Shopping sprees. It's back when America had like a fetish for grocery stores and coupons and stuff. Nickelodeon used to have contests where you could go on a Toys R Us shopping spree. Toys R Us, there you go. Well, it's equivalent to them shoving as many chickens into their grocery cart as they possibly can. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, man, I always wanted to win to be... I had never been to a Toys R Us growing up because I lived too far outside of civilization. Yeah, the... I think the only... I'm not sure if there are any other ones in Maine except maybe just in Portland. So going to like going to the mall was a unique thing to me because only two in maine one in bangor one in portland and it's like a once or twice a year kind of thing so to this day <laughs> malls still are a novelty to me that's and for the yeah best. living living a stone's throw from the mall of america is pretty cool that is cool have you guys been already yes nice i think the first time i ever went to a toys r us maybe the first and last time actually was uh, using some money I uh, we raised in my acapella group in college to go buy a bunch of toys to donate to kids, and oh. we went. So we got to just like go on kind of a little bit of a shopping spree with the money we had at the Toys R Us and buy things that we thought looked really cool. <laughs> but That's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, just watching it on on TV on Nickelodeon is like, oh my god, it looks so cool! Like, look at all the neat things you could get. How neat would that be? <laughs> that sounds like fun. Just watching in your dugout <laughs> soil filled basement bedroom that's right rats being tossed down for you to eat every like three or four hours <laughs> you have to kill them though first <laughs> to make you strong that's right and if i was ever given a whole bunch at once i killed all of them at once because there you go sometimes the supply would stop <laughs> and i brought it right back so and so predators will as a matter of just instinct kill as much as they can with the thought okay this food is here. I don't know when I'm going to get more food again, so I got to kill it all, and then I can come back and just eat this when I need it. And they kind of make right. a cache of stuff to feed off of. So they, that's why people who have chickens in particular, and, and other livestock too, 
can um, have real problems with things like foxes or raccoons or anything. If they if they manage to get inside of the chicken coop, shit gets Bad real news. gnarly real fast. Right. And it seems psychotic because, well, they killed it, but they didn't even eat it. What are they doing? It's right. It's just because they, yeah, they're like, I need to make the best of the situation. It was just temporary psychosis. Basically. Driven by desperation for food, which all right. animals basically which, are. You know, exactly. As for the blood part of this whole deal, uh, let's revisit a process we've discussed before. Mm-hmm. So when an animal dies, its heart stops pumping, mm-hmm. naturally, mm-hmm. and blood pressure stops being a thing. So in the absence of that driving force keeping the blood moving, the blood in the body all just succumbs to the force of gravity and moves mm-hmm. to whichever part of the body is lowest, where it all then collects. Damn it, Jake. I said not to talk about pooling blood. Oh, yeah, man. sorry. Now I brought it up before, but I'm going to go into additional detail this time. So this process right. is called lividity. And Ooh. it starts happening real fast. So here Ooh. is a little something about that from exploreforensics.com. Isn't that one of the books of the Bible? <laughs> I think so, yeah. The one everyone quotes about things that they want to say about people and how they should live their lives, but mm-hmm. they totally cherry-pick the parts that mm-hmm. work for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, quote, Lividity begins to work through the deceased within 30 minutes of their heart stopping and can last up to 12 hours. Wow. Only up to the first six hours of death can lividity be altered by moving the body. After the six-hour mark, lividity is fixed as blood vessels begin to break down within the body. Mm. So in other words, blood starts pooling near the ground within half an hour of death, and depending on the size of the body, can take as much as 12 hours to complete. Wow. But if the thing is small, it's going to be fast, and once it happens, ain't no going back. Right. This is especially true due to the next step, which is coagulation. So once the blood all pools, it then starts to become a lot more... Uh, Gelatinous. Exactly. And so then it's impossible for it to move anywhere else. And so if you then cut into the thing or whatever, trying to look for blood for some reason, you're not going to find it unless you really dig deep, I guess. I think you guys at home, if you've never seen this happen, you can think of blood protein is actually quite similar to uh, protein you would have in eggs. So uh, when you've cooked some eggs and they sort of turn into like a rigid foam, <laughs> that is exactly what's happening with blood going. Delicious. Uh, so long and short of it, though, is that if you find a livestock animal that died sometime in the night, unless it died less than an hour before you found it, it's very likely that all of its blood will have pooled in the part of its body closest to the ground and will appear mm-hmm. absent everywhere else. Mm-hmm. So this explains a lot of like the blood sucking type encounters that people say, as well as livestock mutilations too, which hmm. I keep saying we'll talk about in more detail, but we still haven't. One of these days, mm-hmm. if we get into mm-hmm. specific UFO type stuff, I might go into more detail about that. But uh, one of the cool. stories I mentioned uh, earlier here in the 2017 Chupacabra sightings and stuff mentioned a bull missing its eyes and tongue. Right. But when uh, an animal dies scavengers will always go for the soft tissues first because they're the easiest to mm. get at. Mm-hmm. And so that's a tongue and eyeballs are the two most likely candidates for first thing to get eaten off of an animal before mm. something stronger is able to actually break open the, uh, the carcass body, body cavity. Yes. And then things get more serious. Mm-hmm. But here's something we haven't discussed before that I think is very relevant to any talk of a monster like El Chupacabras. Blood as a source of nutrition. Mm-hmm. So plenty of animals in the world feed on blood, but they are all pretty small and tend to rely on sneaking and or speed to pull it off. So you have various insects that feed on the blood of a host. Uh, you got stuff like ticks, leeches, lampreys, vampire bats. Uh, some birds do it. 
but none of them are that big, and very importantly, none of them tend to single-handedly kill the thing they're feeding on. <laughs> yeah, so true. Like, it is possible that, you know, sometimes lampreys can do enough of a number on different fish that the fish kind of just dies, but they don't, like, hang out and just suck all the blood out of the fish and then move on. It could be mm. like, oh, if one fish is hit by too many lampreys in a row, or I've mentioned before the idea of winter ticks killing moose and how yeah. bad that is because of climate change. Truly um, horrifying. But that's when you get literally tens of thousands of ticks all on one baby moose. Right. And uh, together they manage to drain its entire blood supply in a matter of weeks. Horrifying. But there's... And it's really, not like they're draining it dry. They're just draining it enough that it dies. Yes, exactly. And once they drain it to the point where it dies, they can no longer feed on it because there's no more blood pressure and all the blood is no longer near the surface where they can get at it. So mm-hmm. it all ties together. So yeah, there aren't things that just suck an animal dry and that's their whole M.O., uh, consumption of blood is called hematophagy, and it's mostly a way of scoring some quick and easy protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, some animals just use this as a, a supplementary food source, while others are called uh, obligately hematophagous, mm. i.e. they can't eat anything else. Right. But again, the blood-only dieters are never very large, and this is because of issues that become difficult when you start accounting for what it takes to feed a scaled-up animal. Mm. So, you know, consuming a large volume of liquid can potentially overwhelm the kidneys and bladder. So if mm-hmm. your entire diet is just constantly liquid, um, iron poison can become a, a problem at the volume necessary to support a larger animal. Hmm. And excess protein ain't no good either. It's mm. um, just to get enough calories to avoid starving, a larger blood-sucking animal would have to consume a huge volume of blood. But at that scale, the ratio of proteins to uh, fats in its diet would just not work. Hmm. So here's another term I can throw at all you listeners. Rabbit starvation. Have you heard uh, of that, Wyatt? Yes, yes yeah. I have. It's also known as caribou starvation, I guess. I didn't realize that caribou are also a very lean meat. Super lean meat? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. If you eat a diet composed exclusively of protein or just very high ratio of protein to everything else, no matter how full you may feel after every meal, you will starve to death from a lack of fats and carbohydrates. Right. It's super important to get that balance. Like people talk about, you know, low fat diets or low carb diets. All of those things are important Go to survival. Keto, bro. Yeah, keto. The reason keto, quote unquote, works is because it is causing your body to starve to death and start to metabolize itself. <laughs> exactly, and that's you know, it's it's terrible for you. You should not do that. Yeah, it does have some benefits. I've heard for folks with epilepsy because of the ketones. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Ketones that are released as a part of that actually do have yeah. like a stabilizing effect on that condition. But shy of that, don't do it. And people who actually do do it for medical application have to be very, very careful about what they eat so that they do not starve to death. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's bad. Yes. So yeah, it turns out feeding on only blood would likely cause that. <laughs> Just to cause you to die. <laughs> if you were big enough that you'd require to drink that much of it. Unless you're a vampire. Right. And then it's just kind of more of a, a weird magic curse type thing. But yeah, besides that, if a predator straight up kills an animal in order to feed, it is so much more efficient and thus evolutionarily favorable to just eat the damn thing. <laughs> like if you're already going to kill it, it makes way more sense. It's a lot more practical <laughs> just to eat it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so it just stands to reason that there could never be any animal like the chupacabras. So finally, let's head back to Russia to check in with the rest of the story there. Oh, yes, please do. So they say, we are positive the animal tracks found belong to a stray dog, one or two of them, said Nature Protection Inspector Vadim Vasilyev after he arrived at Davidovka in response to a request for help from villagers. 
He explained that dogs might have acquired a taste for easy killings of barn door fowl and advised mm. locals to hire a firm specializing in the killing of stray animals. Mm-hmm. There are a few areas in this article while I was reading through it and stuff where I feel like I think it was translated from Russian to English and the translation was slightly off, but right. not in a big deal kind of way at all. But I do like that in this particular instance, the grammar suggests that dogs might have both acquired a taste for killing chickens <laughs> and recommended that locals hire a specialist. <laughs> I like that. Anyway, moving on. According to Vasilev, mm. dogs leave little blood when killing chickens because they actually strangle the prey, not bite it to death. Mm. So they either like snap its neck or just suffocate it. But they, yeah, it's more of a biting kind of crushing death. And you think of most predators when they take down larger prey. Mm-hmm. They go for the neck and try and get it to die that way or like um, the muzzle yes lions will often bite the nose rather than like claw and scratch and tear yes um carry on uh so that would explain why there wasn't a whole lot of blood on the scene because like oh they weren't just like tearing them apart they were just trying to kill the things mm-hmm. to theoretically come back for later mm-hmm. but the villagers have little trust in this version uh, one says uh, there's no such thing as chupacabra but i remember a dog attacking my rooster once there was blood all around here we have none Kanchangina said, even if that was a dog, could it have canine rabies? Our children would go to hmm. school soon. We're afraid it could attack them. Chupacabra mm-hmm. is a mythical creature originating from South America, which is said to attack livestock at night and drink the animal's blood. Although it supposedly prefers goats, it would attack other domesticated animals as well. One of the versions of what Chupacabra looks like is a bizarre cross between a dog and a pig. The end. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> a very, very... uh reasonable suggestion stray dog kill the chickens mm-hmm. call it a day indeed and yeah chance to revisit chupacabra and from a slightly different angle than we did before i enjoyed that very much yeah, yeah. that was really cool well, thank you yeah and we hope you listeners at home enjoyed it as well indeed because you're gonna get another like at least a hundred more of these so <laughs> at a bare bare minimum uh-huh so yeah that's a uh a new start to our next batch of the shitload of episodes <laughs> <laughs> and um what a great start it was i brought some garbage you brought some <laughs> some sweet syrup next time perhaps you could haul something out of the gutter and i can take something from the top shelf uncork it especially for this episode Perfect. and pour it into everyone's cup and they can go wow really for me and i can go sure <laughs> um but until that point i'm so sorry <laughs> and i'm jake and uh we'll see you next time <laughs> bye Bye. <laughs> Grab my Terry fold flaps. Grab my flappy folds. Grab my Terry folds. Grab my foldy flaps. Hey, touch my foldy flaps. Grab my Terry folds. You gotta touch them. My Terry folds.